Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today. Our guest is a serial entrepreneur. He's done it multiple times. I mean, I think that now what he's doing is pretty remarkable. So we're going to be learning about it quite a bit. But I guess without further ado, I don't want to make anyone wait any longer. Let's welcome our guest today, Sid Biswanathan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me. So originally born and raised in India, but you were not there long. I mean, you moved quite a bit, you know, around the Middle East and then landing in, in Maryland. So tell us about life growing up. Yeah, that's right. I grew up in India and my, my family moved to the Middle East uh, soon after I was born. My dad was actually a computer programmer. He worked on databases his whole life and started off in languages like COBOL. And he spent most of his life working on Oracle SQL. And all I remember growing up when I was younger is I thought he had actually the most boring job in the world. And I actually actively tried to stay clear of anything computer science related and, and go figure. Somehow I ended up pursuing a career in, in software and, and technology. But I would say my childhood was very normal. Um, I'm a first generation American. We lived a pretty frugal life, but I had every opportunity that you could ask for growing up. And Eventually, I left home when I was 17 to go to college in uh, in Pittsburgh at Carnegie Mellon University, where uh, I studied mechanical engineering. Now, it's interesting because in India, there's a lot of cultural pressure around becoming a doctor or becoming an engineer. So uh, I'm wondering, you know, I'm sure that you made your, your parents very proud when, when they saw that you were doing engineering and, in fact, <laughs> in one of the best uh, universities in the world for engineering. I think growing up with uh, South Asian parents, that's probably always going to be a pressure, regardless of where you grow up. And especially if you don't know what you're going to do, then it becomes an easy default to just go do engineering. But I think I wouldn't do it any differently. Maybe if I go back, I'd actually study more computer science or computer engineering, something more specific to my field. Uh, but by the time I figured out, I studied the wrong thing. My my dad was, was not going to pay for another four-year degree, so I was done. Yeah, no kidding. And in your case, I mean, you right, out, right after university, you went into into corporate America before really going at it as an entrepreneur. At what point did you know that you were going to, you know, launch a thing on your own because you didn't last long in corporate America? Yeah, interesting. I actually started my career in healthcare, but it was definitely not a, a love at first sight type of thing. I started off at Johnson & Johnson and I joined one of these rotational programs where they would send you to different business units across the company to, to learn as, as a new college graduate. And what I realized, I never really 
I was never really locked in or engaged with anything that I was doing at J&J. I thought something was actually wrong with me. Maybe I didn't have the motivation or the energy, but I couldn't get excited about what I was doing. And I kept trying to wonder, how do I be successful in my career if I can't find something I'm passionate about? And it just felt slow to me. It's obviously a very regulated industry. And the eye-opening thing for me happened uh, in one of those rotations. I had one of them was in the Bay Area, and I got a chance to spend uh, eight months in the Bay Area. And I got to see a lot of my friends that graduated from Carnegie Mellon and got these exciting high-tech jobs in, in, the, in, in the San Francisco area. And it was my first glimpse into the, the tech industry. And it was noticeably different than what I was doing. Not only was I struggling trying to figure out what am I passionate about? What do I want to spend the rest of my career on? But I had friends that were, this is back in 2007, 2008, where they were building jailbroken apps in the app store before even the app store existed for iPhone. And it was just exciting. And, and they were building things and launching things. And I was trying to deal with, at the time in the role, trying to figure out how to manufacture diabetes monitors. Now, it took me almost eight years to get back into healthcare and realize kind of when you combine technology and software today i'm i'm more locked in than ever in healthcare and i hope i can spend uh, the rest of my career in healthcare but it wasn't like that when i first got started and it's probably the case for many people starting off their career you have to find your calling and, and find your passion and and maybe for me it's the, the secret is you don't have to be the best technologist or best product mind when it comes to healthcare because there's just a lot of low-hanging fruit in the industry to move it forward. And I found it extremely challenging and extremely interesting. And it's a combination of product, strategy, technology, and and go-to-market challenges that you'll figure out in healthcare. And it's been challenging. And you know, I was probably a little naive entering the space or entering back into this space, but I've, I fell in love with it. And I hope I can, again, spend the rest of my career in it. So then tell us about that moment where you know, you realize, hey, you know, I think I'm going to give my notice here. You know, there's this idea that I have called, you know, that ended up becoming Cartmunch that um, that eventually, you know, you, you went at it all in and, 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 and you pursue it. Yeah, I remember still to this day vividly telling my dad first. I didn't tell my mom first. She wouldn't understand. So I told my dad first. <laughs> and I think the first thing he told me was, uh, well, Sid, by the time you come and tell me about something, you've already made up your mind. So the only thing I can do is to say good luck and support you. And and that was something that struck me is that I, I do spend a lot of time thinking about things. And when I do put my mind to something, then um, I tend to give it a go. And so when I made that decision, um, I was going to start something and I didn't have any software skills. So that was a dilemma and a challenge at the time. And I had a limited amount of savings. So I had to figure out, well, how do I build something, presumably in software and technology? I have no software skills. I have a limited amount of savings. I need to stretch that out for as long as possible. So I actually did something in retrospect. I'm not sure if I'd do it again, but I actually moved to India. Uh, I figured my cash can go a lot longer then. And I wasn't going to ask for any loans or anything from my parents at that point, because at that point, I had to prove to them that I, I could do it. And uh, I moved there and spent about nine months there building my first prototype. I hired a software engineering firm out there. I learned a little bit of software skills, not enough at that point. And I came back to the Bay Area and decided to show off my prototype and wasn't much there, but that was during that trip where I met up with my eventual co-founder in, in Cardmunch. He was actually a college friend of mine or college acquaintance. And we eventually became friends more after college. And he was building one of those jailbroken apps that I was mentioning earlier. And we eventually formed the initial idea for, for Cardmunch together. And it was actually 
uh, a very unique story in that we were pitching uh, Manu, our first investor, and we were telling him about the idea I was working on. Boy was telling Manu about the idea he was working on. And Manu actually came to us and said, look, I, and he was very direct. He said, I don't like either of your ideas, but I think if you two work together as a team, you could build an interesting company. And why don't you solve this problem for us? And I'll fund it today. And he had a stack of business cards that he literally threw in front of us and said, go figure out how to solve this. And it was just um, coincidental. I think that I was working on something in contact management. Bowie was working on something with the iPhone camera. And eventually we, we formed the idea for Card Munch with Manu, which was take a picture of a business card and have it transcribed by humans around the world. As simple as it sounds, that's how it, that's how it started. Now, obviously, with the card match, you know, which, uh, which it was, I mean, I was, a, I mean, I mentioned to you, I was a user and I loved it. You know, I was really disappointed where, where I could no longer use it. But, I mean, it was, a, it, was, it, was, it was very fast, everything that you guys did there. I mean, from the, you know, founding to funding to exit. I mean, that journey was pretty insane in literally like one year. Yeah, it's about a year, year and a half. Uh, it, it flew by. It was, it was definitely an intense year. and. Uh, it was the year that we we definitely paid our dues and uh, worked extremely hard. And uh, fortunately, LinkedIn came calling and, and we sold the business. And, you know, you could look back and, and wonder if that was too early before we had enough product market fit or traction. But uh, it was definitely a life changing event for, for all of us at the table. We were still a, a very small company. Uh, but you're right. We raised a, a small amount of money and uh, sold to LinkedIn in, in 2011. So it because was, uh, how much how much did you raise uh, prior to the acquisition? You know, I think we raised a hundred thousand dollars from Manu, and then we were in the process of raising a seed round. If I remember correctly, we were trying to raise a million dollars, and I think we probably closed half of that, maybe four hundred or five hundred thousand dollars was in the bank, and we sold the business to LinkedIn even before we completed the seed round at the time. So right around that seed funding, if you will. So how did the acquisition, you know, by LinkedIn come about? Yeah, interestingly, we actually stocked a number of. LinkedIn uh, developer meetings in there. We were trying to get in touch with some folks at uh, on the API team because we had trouble accessing the APIs or had some bugs trying to connect with the, the API infrastructure. And so we saw that LinkedIn was hosting a meetup. I think it was like a Ruby on Rails related meetup. And we just went there. It was in Mountain View and we were right down the street. And uh, we, we found a couple engineers who ultimately helped us debug and solve our issues from the API side. And a few weeks later, uh, Manu, our investor, got a call from a, a board member at LinkedIn uh, that he was friends with and said, hey, our team kind of ran into you guys at, at LinkedIn. We'd, we'd love to learn more about what you guys are doing. And so we walked in thinking naively. The initial conversations were really around, well, how do we get more API access? There was this very special API that we wanted that only a few other companies had access to. And from there, over the course of, of several conversations, um, they actually came out and said, would you guys be open to an acquisition? And, and we said, yeah, we, we're happy to chat about it. We're also trying to raise a seed round. And um, that's how it, it eventually happened. So I guess uh, looking back, I mean, how, how do you reflect on that? What, what do you think you, know, you would have done if, if you could go back in time? I think we were very fortunate to have someone like Manu guiding us through this process. And we knew nothing about startups and fundraising and acquisitions. It was uh, I think the best advice he gave us is it's a roller coaster. There'll be moments where you think things are going to go great and other moments where you have really low lows and people aren't using your product or downloading your app. And so um, all in all, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily trade anything in for doing it differently. I learned a lot from it. And I think t 
to a large extent, I've taken all of that lessons that I learned during Card Munch, as well as during my almost four years at LinkedIn. And all that has has built up to what went into Truepill and what ultimately we're working on today. So it's hard to go back in time and and rewrite the story. I mean, certainly I wish I knew everything I knew today, 10 years ago. I think I'd, I'd get a lot farther sooner, but uh, that's life. You don't know everything right when you get started and you have to stumble your way through it. I mean, first, it all out. first company, first exit to a company like LinkedIn is a pretty good stuff. And so in your case, I mean, you went and, and did a little bit of the vesting and resting, as they call it. You know, I'm sure there was not a lot of resting because those were crazy growth years for LinkedIn. Uh, but in this case, you were a product manager there. I mean, uh, here you go from doing a startup to now being on the tech side for another company, but a little bit bigger. I mean, what 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 did you see? What was that experience like at LinkedIn? Yeah, it was my first time in, in a large tech company. And, and you're right, we were going through uh, LinkedIn's hyper growth years. I think when I joined, it was, it was slightly under 1,000 people. And, and three years later, it was probably close to 10,000 employees. So huge amount of growth in those three, four years that I, I was there. And really, I think as as founders, when you get started, you're you're doing some version of product management, but you don't really even understand what product management is or the fundamentals of it. And for me, coming into LinkedIn, seeing how a larger organization runs product and, and how actually it's a disciplined process to how they think about building and prioritizing their their products, it was sort of a boot camp for me. It was the first time I'd learned what formal product management looks like in a larger organization. And I think I'm much better for that now is, is that was my formal training in product management. And I took that on for me and have that with me for the rest of my career. And you keep building on that over years is as a product person or a product leader, uh, you build on those instincts that you formed uh, very early on in, in 2011. And before that, you think you're doing product management. It's a haphazard, chaotic version of product management as a startup founder. And then you learn a little bit more structure and discipline and, and you take that with you for your next opportunities. So talking about the next opportunity, because Truepill was, you know, your baby now, you know, that came knocking when you were at LinkedIn. And as they say, also, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. So at what point, you know, I'm sure that you had all types of ideas, you know, coming, you know, to you while you were at LinkedIn. But why did you decide to go with Truepill and, and what was that process like of bringing it to life? Yeah, so I was at LinkedIn for about three and a half years, and I probably got the itch three years in, maybe even sooner. And it, it just came, and it was it was it felt like it was the right time to to leave and go back to the drawing board. And it wasn't that I was not thinking about startup ideas. You're you're in the startup ecosystem, so you're meeting friends and thinking about startup ideas, not necessarily actively pursuing anything. And I just never found the the right opportunity or idea. And I wouldn't recommend this in retrospect, but I left LinkedIn without any plan on what the idea was. I just decided I wanted to work in some co-working space and just think through different ideas with some friends and prototype ideas. But it turned out to be about a year of actually frustration of just banging your head up against the wall, trying to find the right problem to pursue and uh, build different prototypes. And I was working with a really close friend of mine, and we had a lot of fun building a bunch of stuff. But ultimately, it didn't turn into the, the right business opportunity. And about a year, maybe a year and a half into that journey, uh, I eventually met Omar, who became my co-founder at Truepill. And Omar was a pharmacist, so someone that, you know, completely different background, completely different work experience. And I had a chance to go deep into the pharmacy space with him. And uh, what I noticed that was different working with Omar was 
uh, after a month, you're still asking questions and two months and three months go by and you're still trying to peel back all the layers of this new industry that I knew nothing about and, and trying to assess like, hey, there's something really interesting here without even knowing what might be there, without actually building anything. There was no prototype involved. There was no code being written yet. I was drawn to something about the industry that was, wow, this, there's a lot of stuff underneath the hood that I think could be done. And, and we ultimately uh, together formed the thesis for uh, building pharmacy infrastructure and uh, our role model companies were, and still are to this day, companies like a Stripe and, and Twilio. And we, we would ask questions of um, what would it look like to build a Stripe for, for pharmacy or Stripe for healthcare? Who would use that? And it was purely a theoretical concept at the time. and. Uh, until we got our first customer, which we we spent the better part of 2016 uh, building towards. Because what ended up being the business model of TruePill? So we started off as back-end pharmacy infrastructure for, for a variety of reasons. Um, there were a number of direct-to-consumer pharmacy companies in the space. So the two founding principles when we got started were pretty simple. Number one, we were going to do something in pharmacy. Otherwise, we were the wrong founding team. And number two, we were not going to do anything direct to consumer. It had to be B2B and platform focused. And so we had to go find our first customer because we didn't want to be another direct to consumer player. I think at the time there was probably three, four venture backed companies doing something direct to consumer in the pharmacy world. And um, we didn't want to be the fifth one trying to raise money for something similar. And so that forced us to go down a different model. So then, so then in this case, you know, like how did you go as well about capitalizing the business? We actually bootstrapped the business for about a year, a year and a half. Uh, I was full-time working on it, but Omar was still nights and weekends working at CVS. And um, we really needed to prove it to ourselves. It takes about nine months to a year before you even have your first pharmacy set up. Got to go through the regulatory board of pharmacy approvals, you to get insurance contracts set up. And that takes a solid 12 months in California. And we needed to get that launch to see what it could look like and prove it to ourselves that there was something here. There was a model to pursue. And that involved setting up the pharmacy and ultimately landing our first customer uh, to give us confidence to then think about, okay, well, what's next? How do we think about capitalizing the business? But uh, for the better part of a year and a half, we were entirely bootstrapped. And how was that feeling of uh, securing that first customer? It was good. I mean, it was uh, definitely an aha moment for us. Um, uh, still a large customer of ours today. And and when we spoke with Eddie and Hans over at Nurex, uh, they were this really innovative birth control company in San Francisco. And still to this day, uh, them and, and one other company that um, I would say were the pioneers in this new model for healthcare, this new asynchronous telehealth. It was Nurex and Yoderm, and they became our first two customers and uh, really proved out the model. And from there, over the course of two and a half years, there were a proliferation of about a hundred different brands that we started working with that needed our pharmacy services. And so it was the right time, right place. And at the time it wasn't obvious that this would be a new model in healthcare that we we latched onto. And and really there was only two customers in the market that we saw that were doing it. So how much capital have you guys raised today? Today we've raised $256 million to date uh, over over several rounds. And so guess that's a long way from bootstrapping. Um, so we're no longer bootstrapped for sure. And we've raised several rounds of funding today. And how have you seen the, the expectations and, and, and also the process uh, shifting from, from, from one financing cycle to, to another one? I think the, 
ambition for the company continues to grow with each successive financing or each stage of the business. Um, I don't think financing in itself is is success or a marker of success, but as we've raised at each point, there's always been an inflection point of the business. And um, last month, we just crossed a thousand employees and we're continuing to grow extremely fast. We just completed five years of operating and a number of milestones that came together in our in our fifth year of operating. We crossed 10 million prescriptions shipped and over a million lab tests shipped to our patients. And that's something that uh, probably that lab test that I'm really proud of because it probably took us two and a half years to get to a million prescriptions. And we achieved that on the lab testing side in under two quarters. So a lot of growth has accumulated. A lot of components of our business are, are growing quickly. And uh, it's been fueled by many of our customers who uh, they frankly scaled really fast. And we've been trying to keep up with the demands because um, if they weren't growing fast, then we wouldn't frankly exist as a company today. And the other thing that I thought it was really interesting is that your Series B, your Series C, and your Series D, you did it very close you know, from one another. I mean, literally your Series B was in July and your Series D was in October. I mean, do you think that this crazy growth also perhaps, you know, was caused by, you know, what we were seeing with COVID? 100%. I think there was uh, this thing that the pandemic happened and you never planned for something like that. And when it happened, it was it was a huge catalyst of growth for our business. And we saw large customers that that maybe take years to do something that were moving in weeks and months, and they would turn to TruePill for our capabilities. So this was hugely energizing, this idea that at this moment in time, you can never predict something like the pandemic, but when it happens, the company and the infrastructure that you're building is, is actually perfectly suited to, to match the current crisis, the current needs during the pandemic. And it just created this new level of excitement and growth for the business that we latched onto and said, okay, uh, COVID, let's ride this wave and continue to grow. And that led to several successive financings. And today, when you look at COVID, it's it's been a, a broad shift in the market. And we're still in the midst of COVID. And don't know when the end is near, but I, I, six months ago, it felt like the, the end was close. And, and here we are with another variant. And so I think it's here to stay. And, and the mentality of all our customers and the partners that we work with is, a lot of the changes that are happening now, they're not just going to bounce back to what it was before COVID. We're really entering a new wave of how healthcare will be delivered in our country, and it's going to require a completely new set of tools and infrastructure. And that's what we're setting out to build. Typically, between rounds, I mean, you leave anywhere between 18 to 24 months, you know, to from one financing cycle to another one. I mean, and we were alluding to it, you know, it was just so close in your guys' case. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening now you know, thinking like, hey, how do you guys really arrive to the to the decision or to the thought that it made sense to raise, you know, um, money so quickly, you know, in between one financing cycle to another to even go faster on the growth side? So what is that thought process typically like? Yeah, for us, it's we've been fortunate that all of our financings have not been driven by we have X amounts of runway left or six months of runway left. Now we have to go fundraise. It was always driven around a inflection point in the business for our, our series. A it was all about we were growing very quickly with the initial set of direct to consumer brands and we need to scale our operations across all 50 states with multiple facilities. Then our series B came around and it became clear that not just these direct to consumer brands, but large incumbents like large payers and other parts of the healthcare economy, well, they need something from TruePill as well. So we raised our, our Series B. Then our Series C was, 
expanding our business units. We were just pharmacy for many years, but then we expanded into telehealth and diagnostics. And, and fast forward now to, to the recent Series D that we, we closed, it's a continuation of that story where now we see across the entire market, whether it's life sciences, provider groups, health systems, uh, again, direct-to-consumer brands, which we started with, which are continue to grow really fast, all parts of the segment, they need a version of what Truco has to offer. And so we're trying to align the business to go after and, and grab uh, as much of the market as possible. And so we're in this unique time of uh, going through this consumer-driven shift in healthcare. And uh, we don't know how big this opportunity can be, but that's what's exciting is we're gearing up to try to go get as much of it as possible and uh, look back in a few years and, and hopefully make a dent in healthcare. So as we're talking about looking back and also looking ahead, imagine that you go to sleep tonight, sit, and you wake up in a world where the mission, you know, or perhaps the vision of Truebill is fully realized. What does that world look like? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think we're we're going through a massive consumer shift in healthcare right now, and 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 we've seen these similar shifts in other industries. If you take, for example, e-commerce, where you have large and iconic platform companies like Shopify and Stripe that emerge, or you even take a more recent example in, in consumer finance with a company like Plaid, uh, you look at all these platform companies that have really defined their consumer shifts in their respective industries. Well, you, you look at healthcare, we don't see that platform company, at least not yet. And so when we look ahead five years, hopefully we have interesting stats similar to those other platform companies where say four out of five Americans or hundreds of millions of people, they've been impacted by the work that we do. And, and that's the vision that we have here with the infrastructure and ecosystem that we're building at Truebill. And, and that's the future that we envision. And, and we think it's one that's uh, worth pursuing. And in your case, I mean, Sid, what a, what a remarkable journey. I mean, you've been now obviously with your second rodeo with Truebill, you know, since, I mean, and you've been at it now since around 2016. But before that, you know, you were, as we were alluding to before, uh, with Card Munch, you know, where, where you started, you got started in 2009. So, I mean, that you've been now in the entrepreneurial, you know, an intrapreneurial tool with LinkedIn, you know, side of things for, you know, close to 12 years. I mean, that that's quite a lot, you know, in dog years, especially, you know, when it comes <laughs> yeah. to startups. So, so I guess, you know, imagine if you had the opportunity of, of going back in time, you know, with all this wealth of knowledge that you've been able to, to take and, and you had the opportunity of having a sit down with that younger seat that, that was at Johnson & Johnson and, and thinking about maybe doing something of your own. Um, if you had that opportunity of sitting down right next to, to your younger self and giving yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Yeah, I think that um, the best advice I would give me is, is to do your best work in your current role. I think as founders, you're always thinking about, well, what's the next startup? What's the next venture? How am I going to leave my job to go start a company? And, and you lose sight of, I couldn't have predicted that I would start my career off in healthcare and eight years later. I would be back in healthcare. We're, we're certainly cultivating those relationships and doing your best work in that moment. I think that's really important and something to not lose sight of. I think the second is like, take the long-term view on entrepreneurship. In that moment when you're in your early 20s or mid-20s, whatever it may be, you think about your next company and that, that's it. But the reality of it is you can spend your entire career pursuing entrepreneurship. So if you really take this 20 to 30-year view on, on pursuing entrepreneurship, well, that means you might have some failures along the way. You might have a success. You might work full-time at a company. 
and then you might start a company later, you'll come in and out of these different cycles. And it's really important to keep this mindset of, of continuing to grow in whatever function or area you're in and pick your spots carefully. And I think um, for me, it would be going back in time and doing my best work at every job possible uh, because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what's next or what's on the next horizon. And so for me, I was I was lucky to get that early exit under my belt with with my first company. But even if, if that didn't happen, I think having this mindset that you have the next 20 years to try to build a successful company, and you only need to build one successful company, really, I think that will definitely, that's something I would tell myself is just stay calm, take the long-term view. It's not just this next company. And if you're going to pursue it for the next 20, 30 years of your life, well, the good news is that's you have many, many shots on target. You just have to plan it out in accordance with your life and your goals. I love that. And as you're thinking about growth as well, you know, I guess it comes with with lessons learned and and, and that 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 learning as part of the journey. You know, as 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 now as you're thinking about perhaps a book that you wish you would have read sooner, what would what book would that be? Oh <laughs> I um I'll, I'll pick two. One that I, I love is um working backwards. It's a story on Amazon's uh, playbook and how they operationalize their business. Um, very tactical and helpful advice that if you read it today, you can apply some of those lessons tomorrow in, in any business, in my opinion. And um, I think certainly from a entrepreneurship standpoint, I read a, read a lot of inspiring founder stories. I think my favorite one is probably Shoe Dog, uh, the founding story of Nike. Uh, it's a brand I love, and I just love that story from where it started to where it is today. So maybe two for you there, one inspiring one and one uh, more tactical help with your it. job tomorrow. Hey, there we got the bonus book. So uh, good <laughs> stuff. I'm sure the listeners are going to love that. Really appreciate that. So, well, see, you know, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Oh, you can reach me on Twitter at Sid Vishwanathan, or you can drop me an email, Sid at com. Amazing. Well, Sid, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. It's a lot of fun. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.